theme I'd like to explore a little bit this evening is the self and the world. So, oftentimes in uh, Dharma settings, and have some exposure to the Dharma and teachings and practices, etc. And we hear about this uh, teaching of no self or not self or self, and it can be uh, very intriguing or perplexing, exciting. And both Christina and John, it has uh, come up last night and, and this morning in the instructions, this aspect of not identifying with uh, the body, not identifying with the mind. So it can be quite a charged concept, uh, it can bring up a lot for people. And I think uh, it's very important for us all to remember that the fundamental Dharma question is not actually about self or no self or whatever, it's actually about suffering and the freedom from suffering, that it's about suffering and freedom from suffering. And we can very easily get pulled into regarding other things, for instance, self or not self or no self or whatever, as the fundamental question. And for me, it's, uh, I think, an expression, a sign of the Buddha's compassion that he, he phrased his teaching, he uh, formulated his teaching that way, he conceived it that way, he framed it that way. It's directed towards the end of suffering very, very simple, very, very direct, very, very compassionate. And as certainly as I practice more and more, I, I realize the skill of that in all kinds of ways, all kinds of ways, how, actually, what genius it, it was to do that. So, the fundamental question is about suffering and freedom from suffering. It's not, it's not a question, is there a self or is there not a self, which was actually a question the Buddha refused to answer. He didn't. He just didn't go there. Is there a self? Or does the self exist, or does it not exist? Also, definitely not the case that we're trying to kind of get rid of the self, or explode it, or dissolve it, or merge it into something. <coughs> and I, I would actually add, it's also not the case that we're always looking in terms of not identifying. So, again, both Christine and John have spoken about a hugely important part of the practice, and I'll, I'll speak about it tonight. Not identifying with body, not identifying with mind. But it's not even that we're always engaged in doing that, that that's the point either. Because what leads to suffering and what leads to freedom from suffering? So we can pick up uh, the language, the view, the framework of self, and use that, and we can also pick up and use the language, the framework of not-self, of non-identification. And perhaps, and I think it's true, that in a way different sort of sets of freedoms or openings of he or healings come from each. And they're both appropriate and they're both absolutely indispensable and useful in our journey. So it may very well be that we are having difficulty with something or disconnected from, from something in our life, emotionally or psychologically, whatever it is. And 
the story, the self story of the past can be very helpful. Can be very helpful about a uh, way of seeing the past if if we're using it skillfully, if we're using that story skillfully, can be extremely helpful in terms of healing, in terms of reconnection, in terms of just understanding ourselves. I have a good friend, and when she was when she was young, her father uh, was well, very abusive to her and said, you, you are worthless, you are, wish you'd never been born, you're a parasite, etc., etc. Endless, endless, uh, very, very harsh. When she was very young. And this self-view, how could it not uh, kind of crystallize? And, and how could she not, despite her best efforts, not to see herself that way? So the child, when the child is, is growing in very early years, the child's sense of self is emerging, is emerging extremely open, extremely uh, pliable, without, almost without rigid defenses, and is shaped by what comes to it from the parents, from the education system, from, from peers, from all kinds of, of factors. It's very, very malleable. And uh, it is in a state of emerging and will be shaped and influenced by that. So, some of you may be very aware in, uh, quite old, at least 20 years old now, but uh, in, in certain psychotherapeutic uh, modalities, the work with the inner child <coughs> uh, can be, for some people, extremely useful, extremely uh, healing approach connecting with that part of ourselves that actually still lives and exists inside of us as, as a child. And relearning, uh, as the poem Christina uh, quoted, to, to show a thing its loveliness, to re-show a thing its loveliness. Now, in a way, part of the inner child work is listening to that and re-seeing, re seeing again so that we can cherish that child. If, if that, for, for, no, this doesn't, it's not for everyone, and it doesn't even work for some people, but for the people that connect with it, extremely powerful uh, way of conceiving of self and story, etc. Very, very healing. So that it's a helpful self-concept that can dislodge uh, harmful and encrusted self-concepts can actually dislodge them and replace them uh, with a kind of inner, inner cherishing, cherishing of oneself. can do that. We can also uh, think in terms of a person may not be skilled yet at relating in terms of self, in terms of setting boundaries with people, of standing in one's truth, of being clear, of speaking up for what needs, uh, being, what needs to be spoken up for or feel very inhibited, constrained, repressed in one's expression of one's uniqueness. But all, all this is very common human uh, stuff on a psychological and emotional level. And it might be that in that, taking up the, the language of self, the view of self, the story of self, is extremely healing, extremely appropriate. And nothing unspiritual about it. So we have these two approaches. We have the self, the approach of the self, and we have the approach of the not self. 
And we may ask ourselves, what's my tendency? What's my tendency? Am I is there a pattern in me that I want to I want to just ignore the self and do away with it? And I, I'm not really comfortable kind of inhabiting myself and owning myself. Is that my tendency? Is it coming out of fear? And so I gravitate out of that fear towards teachings of no self and emptiness and all that. Or is it the other way around? That I'm very comfortable with self and, and all that and these teachings of not self and disidentification and letting go of identification just oh, no, too scary. What's my tendency? Perhaps, I, I would say, m maturity in practice, if people talk of such thing, maturity, a mature practitioner is able to actually dip into one and dip into the other, and use one and use the other in a free way, in a fluid way. What's the best response? What's the most helpful response? It's a little bit of a red herring anyway, just, just, just at one level anyway, because um, one aspect is someone who's deeply gone into letting go of identification. Actually, there's a lot of freedom to express their uniqueness. There's no, there's no fear. There's no, um, what, what will they think of me? Or will it be okay? Or um, there's, there's a freedom to express this or express that or be silly or be serious or be firm or be light or whatever it is. So again, this not-self, this letting go of self, does not lead towards the, the grayness. doesn't lead towards grayness. Uh, rather the opposite. It allows color. It allows that. Because we're free. We have nothing to be afraid of. So in, in meditation, we come to meditation, and as I'm sure, already at this stage in retreat, we've experienced maybe just a few moments, maybe maybe longer, maybe a few moments, when there's a quietening, there's actually a quietening, the mind gets quiet, the verbal apparatus gets quiet, and the whole story line gets quiet. That's not that we're forcing that to happen or anything, it just gets quiet. And then, when the story goes quiet, who am I then? Who am I when the story is, is not around? might also reflect back on one's life or, or, or in the course of retreat or whenever how, how the story that we tell ourselves or hear about ourselves is different at different times. If I think back about the story of my life, well, it's different now telling the same period X years ago than it was you know, a few years ago. Changes, the changes depend on the mood. Which is the real story? Which is the real story? Which is my story? Which is the real one? So again, remembering that first point. The, the point is suffering the end of suffering. It's not about dissing story and dissing self and, and elevating emptiness and all that. It's just, where's the suffering? Where's the freedom from suffering? And just trying to in, shed a little light on this and, and shake it up a little bit and, 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 and look differently. So what are the kind of concepts that we have of, of ourself? I was working recently with uh, a practitioner who was not, not on retreat. 
and uh, just meeting with him outside of the tree. And he wanted to explore this area of self. So one of the things he was exploring was the, the kind of images or self-views he had, the kind of concepts he had of, of himself. Um, and so he went away and came back and, and he was talking about this and he said, well one of the things I realized is, he lived in London, he said, I realized that I see myself as a kind of, the way I dress in relation to other people, I'm like urban and sophisticated. <laughs> okay. And he knows that there's also some judgment of others. Which is funny because I was sitting there, you know, thinking anything about Swiss Um Urban and sophisticated. And then he was about that age, it's about my age as well. And he was wondering whether he could put young urbans. <laughs> <laughs> he wasn't quite sure about it. And then he thought, well, the other thing is, I wear organic cotton. So I'm actually ethical, perhaps young urban sophisticated. <laughs> and as you reflect on this, a sort of sense of lightness came into the whole thing. And what had been quite tight and judgmental others, actually a bit of lightness, a bit of loosening came in. And that's a lot of what, what the Dharma's pointed to is lightness, relief, loosening, uh, loosening of the rigidity, the confines. And some sense of liberation came in to a degree. And as we were talking, you know, how would he dress if, if it was 1972? You know, there'd be the flares and the, you know, whatever. Uh, how would he dress if he'd grown up in a little village in, I don't know, South Yemen or something? It would be completely different. So, in the course of this, there was this beginning to loosen the identification, but it doesn't mean that when we, when we let go of identification, that we actually stop doing what, whatever it is that we're less identified with. So, we can actually not be identified with mindfulness with generosity, with all the beautiful qualities that we're cultivating, doesn't mean that we stop cultivating that. One can not be identified and actually keep going. It doesn't mean in this case that he would dress any differently, that you know, we're all supposed to dress like monks or nuns. But it's not saying that. Actually, one of my teachers was a monk and was recalling a story where uh, one monk was riding a bicycle and got the, his rope caught in the, in the chain and it ripped the rope. And then about three other monks kind of descended like vultures and begged him for his robe because they wanted to wear a torn robe so that they would look really ascetic. <laughs> <laughs> um, so there can even be identification with, with, with that. <laughs> On retreat, one of the things we keep emphasizing is continuity of mindfulness. Keep, you know, from the sitting to the walking, and all day long, this kind of the whole day is is a, is a arena for mindfulness. Is is a an area for discovering wakefulness and attentiveness. And what happens? And I'm sure you've, you've touched this at least uh, so far in, in the day. This continuity is there, and we may come into the retreat with a view. I am an angry person, I am a depressed person, I am this, I am that, or I am, I am joyful, I am a happy person, I am a happy-go-lucky. <coughs> and something about the continuity of mindfulness, because it's continuous, we begin to see the gaps in that view, that I cannot possibly be angry all the time, I just wouldn't have enough energy to be angry all the time. 
I can't be depressed all the time. I can't be happy all the time. And the continuity of mindfulness allows this puncturing of the view, of the self-view. Am I always like I say I am, like I think I am, like I believe I am? Now what could happen, it's a, a stage, is we, we see, oh well, actually, uh, I'm not so bad after all, and what I see is I have some good stuff too, and hey, everybody's got a bit of bad and a bit of good. And, and that's nice, you know, it's, a, it's definitely a step uh, freer than, you know, I'm, I'm really bad, definitely. Everybody's got a little bit of everything. But, it's better, but it's, it's, not, it's not the kind of uh, radical freedom that the Buddha was pointing to. It's not something deeper. I talked, when we were talking about patience the other day, we were talking about how this getting too caught up in thoughts of the future and thoughts of the past, how that actually built up a situation to seem like really huge or some, something that we were struggling with and feeling impatient with, that actually built it up. Too much thinking of the future, too much thinking of the past. It's the same with self. A lot of, a lot of the self-sense and self-concept is dependent on my sense of story in time past and future, what I was in the past, what I will be in the future, and how it's going to unfold for me, and how it has unfolded for me, and my whole sense of story moving there. And again, there's no problem in that, but it's to see, the insight is, that the time sense, getting too involved in past and future, builds this self-sense. And if, again, with the mindfulness and the attention, I can come and really just snip off the past and snip off the future and really be attentive in the present moment, it's almost like there's not enough space for the self-sense to build much on. It's just this moment. So who am I in the moment? Who am I when the, when the mindfulness is really key and really there in the moment, really present? Who am I? So all of that, what's it so far? It's in a way it's letting go of the, the, the habit and the compulsion we have to define ourselves. Define ourselves. And the rigidity of that. What can be the rigidity of that. Again, sometimes it's great and lovely and appropriate and helpful to do that. But sometimes it's worth checking out what, what happens when we let go of that. So all of this is more less in the service of finding another definition, which the Buddha very much shied away from, and rather <coughs> in terms of practices and, so to speak, strategies that bring this sense of loosening, of, of freedom, of unbinding, which is the Buddha's word, unbinding. So the, the Buddha goes into this, that you even, even come more and more carefully what, what are the ways, typically, that we conceive of ourselves? They said, typically, typi typical to human consciousness, regards the body, one way I can conceive of the self is regarding the body as the self. Can this is me, this is me, this body is me. Or, could regard 
the self as possessing, as owning the body. This is my body, this is my hand. Or could regard the body, uh, excuse me, the self in the body. Again, that's that kind of sense we have sometimes that there's a self somewhere in here, like a little homunculus in the brain or something. Or can regard the body in the self. That means it would mean some kind of bigger sense of soul or God or awareness in which the self, the, the body, kind of exists. So, body as self, self-possessing body, body in the self, or self in the body. And then he goes through with the other, what's called five aggregates, which have already been talked about, uh, will compromise a human, comprise a human being. And uh, they were actually just mentioned in terms of the mind. So we have the body and the mind. And the mind involves Vedana, these feelings, unpleasant, pleasant, neutral, perception, mental formations, which is thoughts and moods and what we talked about this morning, mental states, intentions, such a whole bag of mental formations and consciousness. Body, Vedana, perception, mental formations, consciousness, five aggregates of a human being. And he goes through the same way of conceiving. Either the feelings are in the self, or the self possesses the feelings, etc. And all the permutations. And so, it, it's, it's a little sort of, you know, a tight logical framework. But it's actually worth considering how how am I conceiving in, in this basic way? And we do. They're, they're, these are actual ways that we conceive of ourselves. This is me. Absolutely, we talk that way. And we talk, or we talk in the sense of owning the body. <coughs> It's, it's worth questioning someone. If this were me, was me, and every time I had a haircut, I would be losing some of me. Or if I really possessed the body, I, it would completely obey my, my wishes and my control. It would be completely in my control. The self in the body, well, where, where is that? Where is this self in the body? You can't find it. It, so it's worth just going through this and actually actually probing a little bit, finding out how is what is the way I can see it, and can I can I uproot it a little bit? Well, actually, the Buddha doesn't stop there. He goes on to say something. He says, "That's the typical way of seeing. That's the typical way of conceiving of oneself. But one who is skilled in the Dharma, one who is skilled in practice." does not regard the five aggregates any of these ways, any of those ways, does not regard the five aggregates any of those ways. And so we might be perplexed and it's like, well, well then, how is myself if it's not any of those? Where is myself? How is it that this self can uh, seem to reap the fruits of my past actions? I behave this way and I, I, I feel the results of that. And it's interesting, again, the Buddha does not substitute another concept. So sometimes there's even this concept, in, even in the Dharma, of a continuum of moments, of mind and body moments, of arising, passing, arising, passing, arising, passing. And that's somehow what the self really is. It's a continuum of arising, passing of mind moments. I, I can't find that anywhere in, in, in what the Buddha said. And interestingly, in this, in this passage, he, he says, when someone asks, he says, no, how you should regard it is, 
all these, all these five aggregates, as, as Christina John was saying, in terms of mind and body. Not me, not mine. So again, it's a strategy. It's a, a meditation strategy that we can develop, we can practice, and we can actually become very skilled in using this way of seeing experience, getting getting familiar, getting skilled at a way of seeing, for instance, bodily sensation or an unpleasant vein or a pleasant vein or a thought or a mind state. It's just an event happening. It's not me, not mine, not self. So it's not so much about substituting any conceptual definition of self. It's a strategy of seeing experience in the moment. And as such, it's a strategy that we can pick up, develop and get skilled at, and put down, and, and then pick up the, the other option of self. <coughs> you could call this not me, not mine. You could call it a kind of negative concept, because actually there's still a level of conceptualization going on. There's still the concept of something happening. Uh, this pain is not me. This mental state of dullness or uh, agitation. It's, it's still a concept of that. We could call it a negative concept. Okay. So that, kind of all that so far, was the, the, probably the most common way the Buddha went about relating to this. To developing, rather than giving definitions and conceptions, actually developing a, a skillful and simple strategy in the present that, that led to freedom, that led to ease, peace, joy, and liberation. And that's something that we can cultivate. We can develop that. Just a skill. But there's another approach that he used sometimes. And it has to do with seeing the way that seeing the way that we conceive of ourselves and the way that we conceive of the world, the way we conceive of ourselves and the way we conceive of the world, seeing that they arise together. They arise together. So we could, for you know, very, we could, we could conceive of ourselves at times as the victim. And that conception needs something in the world to be the victimizer, or someone, or some group, or whatever, the victimizer, the oppressor. I am the victim, I need a victimizer. I could see myself as powerless, and again, I need to be powerless in the face of some, someone or something. Or I could see myself as powerful, am I powerful over something? Am I just powerful, even if I say I'm powerful in the world, it's still in relationship to Be, I could be <coughs> irritated. This is the one that is irritated, and I am irritated by by something in the world. So they, any conception of self, any any sense of self that we have have arises with a corresponding sense of the world. Very typical again, human consciousness or any consciousness way of conceiving, and there's no judgment in this at all, it's just part of how consciousness works, is seeing, conceiving of the self as a center of acquisition, a center of getting. This self can get something from the world. Maybe it will get something that it wants, and maybe it will get something that it doesn't want. And so the world is a field of getting, a 
आती है वो सोच कैसे समथिंग टू गेट समथिंग टू अवॉइड इवन मोर सैटलीसर I am experiencing the world, or the knower knows the known. The self is the knower, the world is the known. The subject and the object, and they they come together, they arise together. Subject, object, experience, experience, knower, knower. At whatever whatever level of subtlety or grossness, they arise together. We go back to the story of the self. Any 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 story that we have of the self must include, either explicitly or implicitly, it must include a, a conception within it of how the world or others are as part of that story. You can't have a story in isolation from the world. So just to point that out and to see it, and is there something there that's worth pursuing? That's worth exploring? That's what I want to go into a little bit. First question to go back to this fundamental Dharma question. Okay, this is true. Which ways of conceiving the self's relationship to the world are helpful? Which ways of conceiving the self's relationship to the world are helpful? We can have a, a, I mean, huge array of ways of conceiving the self's relationship to the world. We could conceive very beautiful ways. Giving to the world, healing the world. In the Jewish tradition, there's this uh, concept tikkun olam, it means to heal the world, to pray for the world, to heal the world. And that's the, the 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 soul's work, so to say, is the, the, the healing of the world. A beautiful concept. To serve could be to take pleasure, take pleasure from the world, getting pleasure. Uh, could conceive of the self as connected to the world, or participating in the world, or a victim, etc. Countless ways that can, that can be conceived. But the question is, which ways are helpful and which are not? And that again is, is the fundamental Dharma question. The fundamental Dharma question. We might also ask a sort of almost as fundamental question: which are true? Which are true? Given that whole range of possibilities, which are which are the true ones? I think it's appropriate and beautiful, very deeply beautiful, to ask, what what can I give to the world? How can I serve the world? And that's a that's a deeply lovely question to ask of oneself. And it may be that uh, a sense, again, of cherishing oneself, a sense of one's own preciousness, in a way, is actually necessary before one can really uh, give to the world, serve, serve the world. Maybe just a slight aside. Talking about concepts and conceiving. It's not that we're trying to get rid of all concepts. It's not that we're trying to get rid of all concepts, at least not for 99.9% of the uh, journey. 
some concepts that we use, that we pick up, uh, lead to entanglement, they lead to suffering, they lead to dukkha, this, this, this unsatisfactoriness. Some concepts that we pick up lead to compassion, they lead to peace, they lead to freedom. So for example, where we're suffering, something's difficult, we have a pain, an emotional pain. And we can very easily, very easily get into a, sometimes without even realizing we're doing it, we can get into a belief, I'm the only one who has this. No, no one else experiences this. And sometimes that thought, that concept, is operating almost at a subliminal level. Versus reflecting on, and this, this can be done very deliberately, reflecting on how many people in the world, perhaps even right now, are experiencing something very, very similar. Very similar. How different can it be? Or, in the course of humanity, have experienced, will experience something, something very, very similar. I remember doing this as an exercise when I lived in the States and my teacher suggested it. And, um, how, what happens then when we, when we begin to reflect on the com commonality and the shared humanity of experience, the suffering, the sense of suffering actually soften. It can, it can, it can uh, die down a little bit. It can, it changes its, its uh, changes its, its heaviness because we're not compounding suffering with a sense of isolation, a sense of it's only me. And there can be a softening and and a sense of release there, or at least of holding. So that's that concept of commonality leads to freedom. The concept of isolation, again, which might be going on without even realizing it, is leading to more suffering, more entanglement. John spoke the other night of the Four Noble Truths. That's, that's a concept, it's a conceptual framework. But it's a conceptual framework that leads to very deep freedom, extremely deep freedom. It's worth picking up that conceptual framework. It's worth learning to see experience through that through those lenses, through that conceptual framework. Or this not me, not mine, as the Buddha suggesting, practicing, getting familiar with. That too is, as I said, a kind of negative concept. It's worth um, worth developing because they're concepts that lead to freedom. So we can sometimes demonize concepts, or we hear get beyond concept and get get beyond thought and all and all this. We have to be very careful because concepts operate at, at way deeper than a verbal level, way deeper. And if we just say, I'm not going to have any concepts, most of the time what's going to happen is we're going to fall back on our default concept. I'm here, you're there, we're listening to a Dharma talk, and it's you know, such and such time, da da da, and we're in Guy House, etc. So when I say concept, when we're talking about concept, it's not so much about intellectual theories and big structures of it's like this or it's like that, no, I think this. And it's not so much that. It's they're, they're quite, um, quite subtle. Quite subtle. And they're, they're, they're actually going on all the time. They're going on all the time. And the, one of the deep thrusts in practice is actually to uncover what are the concepts. How am I looking at the world? How am I looking at myself? How am I looking at experience? And can I actually work with that? Very, very deliberately, very carefully, very skillfully, very caringly uh, to discover. 
So, as I said, there's, there's a vast array or vast range of possibilities of how the self and its relationship to the world can be, can be conceived. And some may be helpful and some much less helpful, some really actually problematic, causing problems. But is there even a limit to that, to the ways that we conceive of self and, and the world and its relationship to the world? Whether it's through a story or even through a very subtle concept. Perhaps any sense of self in relationship to the world as being something really, truly, inherently real, any concept will invite a sense of threat. This self is threatened by the world, what is not self, what is other. Just, just by virtue of having any concept of that duality. So, most, even if we quite quiet in meditation, etc., or just quiet in our daily life and you know, just going about our day, what it seems very difficult to get away from, what seems most obvious to us, most intuitively obvious, most completely the most obvious thing in the world, is that here is a self moving in or through the world in time. That seems the most taken for granted thing. I am a self, you are a self, moving in or through the world in time. It's, it's basic, it's basic to our sense of life. But the, the diamond goes even deeper. It's like, is that, is that true? And, and again, the most fundamental question, is there some dukkha, is there some unsatisfactoriness in even conceiving that way on, on, on a subtle level? again, and perhaps some of you have tasted this, mind can get quite quiet sometimes in little moments or, or stretches of time in meditation or, or, or in nature or whatever. And it can seem sometimes, can, can occur, that we have a sense of sort of watching the river of experience flow by. And the witness is almost sitting on the banks of the river of experience and watching it flow by. And so there are sensations, and there are sounds, and there's um, moods and thoughts, and it's all just part of this river flowing by. It's all just coming and going and flowing by. A very beautiful sense of just kind of stepping back and having a bit more space and being less identified. And just sitting on the banks of this river and watching everything flow by. Sometimes, even the sense goes even more than that for, for some people if the mind really deepens can be uh, or is even possible to, to develop as I actually mentioned it tomorrow morning that the world the world of experience that's what the world means is our world of experience it seems to kind of arise in the space of awareness rather than a river flowing by it's as if everything's just popping up and disappearing in this big space of awareness. Quite calm and quite spacious, and everything's just appearing and disappearing. A sight comes out of silence, a sound comes out of silence and disappears. And a thought pops up and disappears. And this and that. And, and it's all just coming and going. And the awareness just kind of embraces it all, contains it all, and this sometimes what can be like really, really quite vast spaces. And that awareness or witness consciousness or 
whatever you want to call it, it, feel, it can feel like it's just there and it's kind of untouched, unfazed by what's going on. And so everything's similar to the witness being on the bank, everything's just passing and the witness is separate and just watching. Or this awareness is just there and everything is just arising and passing and that awareness is still and serene and vast and untouched, unfazed. Now, both of these, both the sort of riverbank uh, scenario and the, and the big awareness scenario, beautiful, beautiful, you know, a relief from the kind of uh, hurly-burly of being too entangled and too caught up in the identification. Again, it's not that we want to spend all the time there or that we even can, but a relief from that. Beautiful spaciousness, beautiful sense of of ease, of, of freedom, of peace there. And as such, there are actually experiences such that slowly over time, a dedicated meditator will actually be very interested in cultivating and developing that. So actually having that sense, you know, more and more, hanging out there. But, two things. One thing, remembering what was mentioned both last night and this morning and again in this talk earlier. Awareness, consciousness, knowing as the fifth aggregate is not self. The first thing is we can't identify with that witness or that big awareness. Or it's possible to actually not identify. We can actually practice letting go of that identification. But secondly, and what I really want to get to tonight is the witness Mindfulness, awareness, consciousness, whatever, always, always, always exists together with factors, factors of consciousness, factors of mind, that, as John said this morning, that color and shape and fabricate our experience. They fabricate what we experience. So there's always something, as John says, when there's some mood or something that's colouring the experience, that, and this gets very, very subtle. What's in, the, what's with the consciousness? Consciousness can not exist by itself. So the experience is always being coloured, shaped, fabricated by what, whatever else is with consciousness. So this word sankara that was uh, mentioned earlier. Sankara has an, a couple of different meanings. One of them is to fabricate, to concoct, to, to compound. And as such, our experience, our world of experiences, is fabricated and compounded by thought, by uh, mind state, by uh, reaction, by view. Even the view of a self-experiencing is, is, is enough of a view to compound and fabricate things by intentions, all kinds of intentions. Some of it's extremely subtle. One time, uh, I paraphrase the story because I couldn't find that reference, but one time the Buddha was sort of hanging out with, with a group of monks and he, he said, listen monks, Listen, I'm paraphrasing, I can't read that. If you had a stride, a, a walking stride, that was as long as India, 
from the Himalayas down to Sri Lanka. If you had a, a, a you know a, a walking stride that was that large, and you walked for a lifetime, a hundred lifetimes, a thousand lifetimes, you would not come to the end of the world. I'm paraphrasing. You would not come to the end of the world. But I say, who does not see the end of the world does not know liberation, does not know nirvana. And then apparently he went into his little hut and closed the door. <laughs> and could be heard softly giggling there. <laughs> and it was left to Ananda, his cousin, and the other monk said, um, can you explain? <laughs> so what's he getting at here? Sometimes, when, again, when, when the mind is relatively calm and there's a kind of open awareness, we can actually see, we can see at different levels, we can see this process of fabrication going on. We can see this building up of a thing, an experience, an event, uh, building up of the world. We can actually see that in meditation. And what's even more amazing, we can actually let go of that building. So the word translated for sankara, concoct, fabricate, actually implies those words in English imply something not quite real, concocted, fabricate, like prefab, you know, like put together. So, for example, we're in our day in meditation or, or whatever, and there's a lot of proliferation. There's a lot of story about myself and about something, and it's very complex. There's a lot of building up of both the sense of self, when that's going on, we've really got into a stew about something. A lot of sense of self, there's also a lot of sense of thing, of situation. Both the world, the thing, and the self are built up. And with encouragement in this practice, when that's the case, and there's all this stress involved with that, to actually let go of the story, and one can see, you know many a taste of it, can see, the, the, the story dies down a little bit, the sense of self gets just a little bit quieter, and also the sense of the thing, the prominence of that thing in consciousness, the sense of the world, the world experience gets a little bit quieter. Now this is a continuum, this is a continuum. So that, that's one degree of letting go of self-identification, you could say. We could go back to this business of letting go of identification with the body and the mind in aggregate and start practicing that way. And again, we notice when we do that, when I don't identify with what's going on in the body, in the mind, sensations, the vein, and the thoughts, etc. Similarly, the sense of self can die down a little bit, and also the sense of experience correspondingly dies down, the sense of the world dies down as well. One can go deeper and deeper into this. One even lets go of the identification of consciousness, which is a very subtle thing to let go of identification with. There's really very little happening. And as it's a continuum, less and less happening when there's less and less identification. And it can get to the point where actually nothing happens, nothing arises at all. Less self, less world or can also approach it via this letting go of the sort of push and the pull we were talking about when we talked about Vedana, struggling with what's unpleasant, pushing it away, and pulling towards us what's pleasant, being constantly engaged in that struggle with the world. And through practice, through becoming aware, I can actually learn to soften that struggle, 
And then again, one notices through softening that struggle, through relaxing it, there's a let it go. There's a, there's a fading almost of the sense of self, and there's a fading of the sense of the world. So much so that even the sense of a present moment can can go. Even the sense of time can go past, future, present as well. What do we see? What does this mean? It means that the self-sense is, we say, empty, dependent on me pushing and pulling. The more pushing and pulling, the more struggle I have with experience, the more my sense of self. We can we can see this in meditation. It does get very subtle. We can see it on, on, a, on just a very everyday level. The more the pushing and pulling, the more the sense of self. The sense of self depends on that pushing and pulling. The sense of the world, the experience of the world, also depends on the pushing and pulling. So the self is empty, the world is empty. And, but what the Buddha was pointing to, that can we can let go so much of the identification of pushing and pulling that actually the whole sense of the world or the self just is not there and, and what is there can only be called unfabricated, uncompounded, unborn, undying, nibbana. So this what I really want to stress is this this is a continuous is something that we can all experience. Uh, to some degree we can go on this journey, we can explore, we can play with this and notice this. But it's really something that's available. Buddha said, when we, when we see the origination of the world, in other words, how we build the world, the world of experience, when we see that, when we see the origination of the world as it actually is, with right discernment, with wisdom, with insight, non-existence with reference to the world doesn't, does not occur to one. It doesn't occur to one that this, this is completely not real, doesn't exist. When one sees the cessation of the world, this ending of the world, this dying down of the world, the world of experience, as it actually is, with right discernment, existence with reference to the world doesn't occur to one. You can't take it as something really real. This isn't nihilistic. It's not, um, it's not something that, as, as we begin to go on this journey, it's not something, again, it's not something grand. And it's definitely not something that leaves one in a state of existential kind of confusion, like that we're supposed to be in some kind of just really confused about what's real and what isn't and what's what's what. Uh, it's also not frightening. It's something that, as as we move on that journey, we, something we can all do. That there's a reverence. Actually, it, it opens up a real sense of beauty, of awe, of wonder, a, a real bowing to something that really can't be adequately put into words. One time, a, a, a cosmologist uh, visited the Buddha later, these Brahmin cosmologists, people who had theories about how the universe was. And he said to the Buddha, does, does everything exist? And the Buddha said, that's the most common cosmological view. And he said, well, all right. Does everything not exist? So that's the second most common. <laughs> and Brahma said, Is everything one? Is everything oneness? And the Buddha said, That's the third cosmology. <laughs> Is everything a plurality, a multiplicity? That's the fourth cosmology. 
And the Buddha said, these are all views, these are all extreme views in one way or another. What I teach is dependent co-origination, what we've been talking about, we've been talking about this co-arising, the sense of self and the sense of the world. Dependent co-origination, we explained it to this cosmologist, that that's the middle way. It's not an extreme view, it's not compromise middle, middle. It's, it's something that actually transcends those views. That's the middle way dharma. And so the cosmologist was uh, rejoiced and was delighted in the blessed ones when he bought it. <laughs> um, what we see is the self actually isn't inherently any particular way. We have, as I said earlier, we have this tendency to want to define ourselves or others, selves or others. It's not an inherently any way. The world as well is not inherently any way. So the world is not fair or unfair. I grew up, my mom kept telling me the world was unfair. But it's not fair or unfair. It's it's not benevolent or cruel or even indifferent. The world is not benevolent or cruel or indifferent. The world is not separate from us. It's not one with us. It's actually even beyond the separate, say even beyond interconnectedness. It's beyond that. And as the Buddha said, you can't even say it exists or it doesn't exist. So this isn't supposed to be baffling or confusing or or frightening or grey or nihilistic or anything like that. It's actually, as I said, something we can begin to move on this journey. Absolutely, we all can. And we can just go deeper and deeper with it. And what its fruit is, is, is a sense of freedom. To the degree that we go on this journey, there will be that sense of freedom, of opening up of what the Buddha called unbinding. That's one translation of the word Nibbana. Unbinding. We're unbound. The, the way we conceive and see things, the way we define things, the way we even experience things, things in ourselves begins to be unbound. So the more and more we see this and sense this and explore it, the more and more freedom there is. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.